Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Maria del Socorro Castañeda and her daughter, Lupita, talk about why they co-founded Becoming Mujeres and why they are on a mission to help heal intergenerational trauma. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. I am very, very happy to be here and share with all of you. Uh, my name is Dr. Maria del Socorro Castañeda, and I'm here with my daughter, Lupita. Um, well, actually, my name is Guadalupe Tonantzin Castañeda Lyles, but all of you can call me Lupita. Long name, just like <laughs> mine. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, I have a PhD in sociology. I also have my, my bachelor's and my master's are also in sociology with a focus on uh, religion and the Latinx experience, in particular Catholicism. My work centers on the, the lives and devotion of women. And Lupita, tell us a little bit about you. So besides my very, very, very long name, um, like I said, all y'all can call me Lupita. I am a freshman in high school. I'm 15 and I am the co-founder of Becoming Mujeres. Yes, we are the co-founders of Becoming Mujeres and Lupita will share with all of you uh, what we do in, with Becoming um, Mujeres. Uh, today's topic is gonna center on intergenerational healing. I think that this is a very important and timely topic particularly in the midst of the post-pandemic, uh, also with social media all over the place in our lives, social media entering the most private spaces in our homes. I think that that intergenerational healing is so important because uh, we need to have an open communication with our children. And that uh, you know, begins with, you know, taking some risks and having courage because you, know, we, you deal with topics that sometimes you feel uncomfortable with, topics that maybe um, our parents or our mothers in particularly never addressed because they felt too ashamed or they thought of them as inappropriate. So generational healing is precisely that, to, to transgress those silences and have an open unhealthy communication with your children. So that will be the topic about uh, of, of today. So before we get into all of that, I first wanted to ask you about your research and writing. Yes, my research and writing. Oh, well, Lupita is very familiar because I've been doing <laughs> my research and writing since I, I, I was pregnant. So um, I'll talk about my book. Uh, as I mentioned, my research centers on the Catholic experience of Latinas. Uh, the title of my book published by Oxford University Press is titled Our Lady of Everyday Life, La Virgen de Guadalupe and the Catholic Imagination of Mexican Women in America. And just a little, a little side note about the, the term America. Uh, by America, I mean America as a continent. So in this case, Mexico and, and the US. And um, my book is about growing up Catholic. And my in, initially, I was interested in doing uh, or writing a book on the devotion of Our Lady of Guadalupe among uh, Catholic Latinas or uh, Catholic um, Latinas of Mexican origin. 
So my my perception back then was, okay, I'm going to get to hear testimonies about miracles granted, um, who are Lady Guadalupe is in their lives, how they pray to her, how they celebrate her. And yes, you know, the, my, the conversations I had with the women I interviewed definitely had a lot of those stories, but something more happened. The more and more I got to know the women, I did ethnographic research, so I lived in the community. So the more I got to know the women, the more they opened up. And they also opened up about the silences that come with growing up Catholic, particularly the silences around sex and sexuality, puberty, the menstrual cycle, that was a big topic. And, uh, and then I came to find that to talk about de uh, devotion, to talk about Catholicism, to talk about, in this case, La Virgen de Guadalupe, is also to address the silences that comes with growing up in that particular uh, faith or, or devotion. Um, so that's what my research and, and writing is, um, is about. So, I mean, we already addressed like what it was about, obviously, because that was what your response was, but what specifically did you learn from your book? You know, Mika, that, that's a really, really um, a powerful question because I learned a lot and I continue to learn. I mean, I learned about how across generations, there the, some of these silences are consistent. That's why we need to be proactive uh, to heal those silences. The, the internet, going back to intergenerational healing is so important. Uh, just to give you a little bit more background about the women that I interviewed, I interviewed three age cohorts of women. So college age women, um, mothers and older women. So the, the age range was anywhere between 18 and 82 years old. And so you can imagine the different stories across generations that, that I was able to, to listen, the stories that these women gifted me. But one of the things that I saw consistently was the silence. And I'm gonna take uh, time right now to uh, read to you a section of my book that will exemplify what I mean about the silences across generations. So this uh, took place uh, in, um, it uh, took place here in, in the US and her name, the, the young woman that I interviewed, her name is Anita. She is uh, 21 years old. And what happened took place in the kitchen. So it was Anita, her mother and her grandmother. And they're all at the kitchen table, just sitting and uh, chit-chatting and you know, having some snacks. So this is what, um, what she says. She says we, so this is Anita talking. We, meaning grandmother, mother, and Anita, were sitting at the kitchen table at home. I got up and left to go to the bathroom, and I found out I got my period. So yo muy casualmente, casually, you know, I went out of the bathroom, and I told my mom, ya viene. Here it comes, all week, porque me bajó la regla. I got my period. And my grandmother starts freaking out. Que por qué, muchachita? Why, she told me, hay de esas cosas no se hablan, muchachita. You young lady, you don't talk about those things. And I'm like, I'm like, una, estoy hablando con mi mamá. First of all, I am speaking with my mom. I don't want to be disrespectful, but that was very, uh, that was very awkward, you know. I was like, lady, I know 
why I don't know why you're flipping out. And this happens every month, you know, and until you hit menopause, it was happening to you, to you too, okay? Later that day, they both explained to me that she, my grandmother, was very much raised with the belief that if you cannot talk about it in church, you can't talk about it anywhere else. So this experience, Anita's experience with her mother and grandmother, and grandmother exemplifies that um, that those silences again that come with being Catholic. I always say, and what I learned going back to your question, Lupita, is that growing up Catholic is it's a very it's very beautiful experience. You you know you are part of the tradiciones. Um, in the case of those of us who are devoted to Our Lady of Guadalupe, the celebrations of the twelfth of December, the Easter celebrations, El Via Crucis um, on uh, Good Friday. So the very life-giving experiences, life-giving experiences, experiences of hope and of a better, uh, a better tomorrow. But with that too, what I what I learned is that as a, as women uh, or as girls enter puberty, the silences um, become bigger and bigger. Particularly, as I mentioned, silences around sex and and sexuality. I mean, honestly, like. I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, you would expect like this whole, like it's a new age, a new day and age. And you would expect that we would have such much, much more freedom with those topics. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going back to what you were saying, like, yeah, there are still silences. And honestly, like, I still wonder why do we have those silences? So yes. thank you for addressing that. Yeah, and, you know, th those those silences, again, they're there, and I think, and that's a good good question, and, you know, a very powerful question, and a, and a big, heavy question for us parents, <laughs> why do we still have these silences, and, and, I, and I go back to that we haven't healed um, many parts of ourselves, and we, we haven't um, been, for various reasons, we haven't been able to, to grow into, um, uh, into a space where uh, where we are, where we could be who we are, and and celebrate it ourselves, whether people agree with it or not. You know, we cannot change other people's perspective about us, but we can definitely control how we react to those to those perceptions or how we choose not to react to those to those perceptions. So definitely, this is the the, the heart of the topic, and we're going to go more into it. In, uh, in a little bit, but right now I want to take the time to ask my Lupita to share with all of us, you know, why we co-founded Mujeres, because again, it goes back to those silences that we have been yeah, talking about. Definitely those silences and that need for healing. Yes. That definite need and longing for closure and, you know, coming back full circle, like going back to your roots and needing to address those topics that are unannounced, mm -hmm. that are unheard of. So, you know, let's get into the story. Let's get into the story before we analyze, you know? So, you know, fifth grade, all good. I was vibing. I had all these different friends. I was like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, middle school was right around the corner. And as all my peers, I was so excited because it was a new start of the, the opportunity to finally be, be considered a big kid. You know, I was going to finally entered teenhood with all my friends. I was so excited. And, you know, I really hyped up the situation. And I, you know, time rolled around as time does, because that's how time works. Uh, and middle school, like, 
came into light. And I walked in thinking that I had everyone around me, like having all my besties. And then I turn around, I look back and there's no one there. I lost all my friends. All of them ditched me. And the few friends I had left weren't necessarily my friends. Like, you know, you know the vibe. It's like, they're not. <laughs> yes, I know. They're not really your friends. They kind of like, unfortunately, they backstab you or they critique you in ways that you didn't, you couldn't fathom was possible. So I was already struggling with the fact that all these people that I thought were my friends are gone and my supposed friends weren't necessarily really there for me. And first of all, that's already too much to handle, but pile on being critiqued about everything going from my body to my academics, to social media, to my social life here in the present, it was too much for me. I mean, it's too much for anyone, but for an 11 or a 12 year old, it's even more because who can you turn to? Yeah. And, and tell them, share with them why they, they, um, bully you, uh, because of social media. Yeah. Um, I, my parents didn't allow me to have social media and yes, I do have the opportunity. Like I could get it now. I do not want it. And it's actually because of everything that I was put through back in middle school. Um, for that one really short, tiny period where like I tried to download an app, it was, I couldn't, I, I really couldn't because, you know, remember that one time that you tried to like allow me to download what musically or something for like yeah. a minute and it was already too much for me. We already had to delete yes. it immediately afterwards. <laughs> um, like I told them like, yeah, I tried getting social media. I just, I couldn't do it. And I was bullied for it. I was told like, oh, you're just, you're not cool enough to get social media. You're still a little kid. I mean, middle school, it, like no one's really a big kid in middle school, but everyone has that complex as if they are already grown up. And that process of growing up faster than is expected is amplified by the use of social media. And, you know, being that I didn't have social media or I couldn't get social media, even if I tried to, I just, I couldn't handle it. Um, that really reinforced the fact that I pers that I apparently was not growing up as fast as everyone else around me was. So going back to what I was saying earlier, I was, I was made fun of for not having social media. I was made fun of for my body that I didn't look the way that all the models on social media looked like. And I mean, that's impossible. Like I'm like, I was like 11. I couldn't have the body of Kim Kardashian. <laughs> it's impossible. I can't do that. Uh, no matter how much stuff I wore, no matter how much I begged and begged to wear certain things that amplified my non-existent curves, it wouldn't have worked. And I was made fun of for that. It's, it's looking back. It was terrible when I was going through it, but looking back at it now, it, it was laughable because I put in so much effort for people that weren't even doing the same thing. So I, I didn't go to anyone at first. I just, I went to my peers and all they told me were the same exact things that everyone else was telling me that I needed to fix the problem by fixing myself. And I was just like, you know, I'm done. I'm done with this. I can't do it. I was afraid to go up to a teacher, to my parents, because I thought it was going to be too cliche. It would be like those PSAs where if you're being bullied, go talk to an trusted adult. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's what adults say, but that's not going to fix a problem. But, you know, 
it was my last resort. I had to go to my parents. I had to say, you know what, this is what's going on. And despite how many people told me I was going to snitch on them because I couldn't handle what everyone else was telling me, I, I was, I was done with it. I couldn't do it. So I went to my mommy. I went to my papi. I was like, yo, I'm, I'm going through some stuff at school. This is not working for me. I can't do it. It was, it was so bad. I told them everything, every small detail. I didn't leave a single thing out because how could you leave a small detail out when it's every single day, it's repetition of why you're not good enough for society, why you're not good enough to be on an Instagram post. You're not good enough for the likes, for the follows. It's, it was too much for me. And I know I may sound like a little, a little, I guess, cliche, um, being like the darn social media, not good for your brain, but honestly, it's not. And if, if it's a teenager who's telling you social media isn't good for you, I mean, maybe it's not good for you. I mean, coming from the target audience, if someone from the target audience is saying, this is not good for you, it's, it should really, listen. you should listen. <laughs> it reinforces the fact that it's not good for you. Yes. So, so share with us when, um, you know, when you find, remember the conversation that yeah. we had in, um, and then I'll share how I felt when she was yeah. telling me all this. I was actually just about to get into that. Um, but being told that, you know, you're not good enough is, awful for a child but telling a parent that their own child is being constantly reminded how they're not good enough is basically saying like you're you're bad you're bad at parenting that's, <laughs> yes. that's basically what it's saying so um like going back to everything i i did tell you i told you everything i didn't leave a single thing out because how could you when that's the only thing you're hearing every single day and you know despite every act like all the access you could have had as a doctor all the education that was provided for you everything that you could access as a professor at a, at a university even though you had all that access to all this profound knowledge you couldn't come up with an answer mm -hmm. and yeah. that i'm oh, sorry you were no no, no no go ahead um i mean i i feel like that really says that no matter how much experience you may have there is always going to be at least one thing that you will never have the answer to mm -hmm. and I'm not saying it's just you but for me also like I no matter how much of a teenager I was I still didn't know how to react to it I still even to this day I I don't know how I would have reacted because you know, I'm, I'm in a better place now. I have people that actually care about me that are my age, but even though I've grown from that situation, I still don't know how I would have reacted. So it's understandable, um, your reaction to it. And we did spend time, you know, looking for opportunities to fix the situation, um, specifically for Latina teens and mental health, but nothing mm -hmm. came up right no nothing yeah because one of the things that in like my case like I said my, my experience when Lupita was sharing with me what was going on at school I I I've broken into a million and one pieces again for the reasons that Lupita is saying you no know, here I am uh, a college professor I I teach on uh, about women I I teach on women's empowerment I teach on women you know the importance of being assertive and here I am, my, my teen daughter's coming to me, crying, sharing with me what's going on at school. 
So, you know, obviously the first, the, the, my first uh, reaction was to feel, to feel bad as a parent as like, my God is like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not helping her as what I'm, I, I was supposed to, um, I'm supposed to be helping her. And then the more that she shared with me and we, we talked about it, um, I, I told myself, as I told Lupita, there has to be something out there, particularly uh, that, uh, that can help us answer our questions about, you know, Latina teens nowadays. And, you know, we did research, we were, uh, I was hoping to find maybe some YouTube videos or, or websites, and I didn't, you know, I didn't see anything, we didn't see anything that, that was particularly, uh, uh, had a focus on Latina teens. So that's when um, her and I decided to co-found Becoming Mujeres. Mm -hmm. And you want to tell them what we do with, uh, with Becoming Mujeres, what type of um, workshop yeah, we do? Yeah. Um, but, you know, thank you for your response again. Um, it, was, it was a wonderful opportunity to turn such a negative event into a learning experience, not only for us, but for other, you know, teenagers as well as female caregivers, because like you said, and like you were kind of like getting at um, in the past, you know, conversation, of, not conversation, um, uh, discussion we were having, um, specific, like, especially like in the very beginning, like, it all comes down to the parent's impact mm -hmm. on the child. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent, but an authority figure that clearly has some form of influence on a child. So what we do is we provide workshops on really strengthening that bond between Latina teens or just teens in general and their female caregivers, because, you know, like, it's always said like a mother's love is like the best and most important love, but sometimes mothers or any female caregivers, you know, they have that love. They really want to give it, but it's not necessarily done in a way that's beneficial for both of them or beneficial for that relationship, that bond. Mm -hmm. So we're addressing that where there may be a slight fault in both the teenage daughter and the female caregiver. And we address that in a way where we can reevaluate where we're coming from and kind of like relearn how to build that sort of relationship. Yes, exactly. And, and then what, what that, you know, what you mentioned, it's, it's so important because what we do with the workshops is um, to help the teen uh, girls understand where their mothers or female care caregivers are coming from. You know, sometimes, um, you know, there's arguments uh, between, let's say, let's take the, let's take, let's take the example of a mother-daughter relationship. There are arguments over um, how the teen wants to dress, and the mom says, "I know she's objecting because either the the skirt or the shorts are too short," and, and then that leads into an argument. The teen daughter thinking, "Oh my God, my mom doesn't understand. She's so old school," and then the mother, on the other hand, is saying, "Saying like, well, can she see? Like, this is very inappropriate." So this is where becoming mujeres comes in, and we help the female caregivers and the teen, uh, the, the, the teen girls understand, or at least begin to understand, comprehend what the social context in which each is coming from. Because the with the female caregiver, you know, she is making decisions and giving advice to the to the teen girl based on her own social context, based on her experience of becoming a woman. And the teen girl, she's at a very, you know, a very uh, 
in a very different, she's from a different generation. There are things uh, that are available to her, like social, me social media that were not available to the female caregiver when she was coming of age. So we, we deal a lot with intergenerational healing. And what we say is that it's so important to not only teach the teen girls and give workshops to teen girls, but also to the female caregivers because we can give the teen girls all the, you know, the self-empowerment uh, uh, tools that they need, but if they go into a home where they cannot speak freely, they don't feel comfortable talking about very, uh, um, very serious subjects like sexuality, sexual identity, if they don't, uh, dating, if they don't feel comfortable talking about those um, subjects with their female caregivers, then, you know, it's, it's useless. So we need to build that open communication. So becoming mujeres is is um, that that bridge. Yeah. So speaking of generational differences, um, you know your origins. Uh, how would you say your experience growing up Catholic was? Ah, that's a good question. Very different from yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I I am originally from Mexico. So I lived in Mexico with my parents up until the age of nine before we um, migrated here to, to the U.S. And I want to say, I know I come from a very, very traditional family, uh, traditional Catholic Mexican family. And uh, growing up, you know, going to mass, being part of, uh, I was part of the, the youth group. I was an altar server. I was a Eucharist minister. You name it. I did everything at church except celebrate mass because I wasn't allowed or else I probably would have, <laughs> but, you know, at home, it, it was, it was, um, it was difficult because, you know, there were things that I wanted to do that I was not, uh, not allowed porque, you know, las niñas, las niñas uh, que se portan bien, no, no andan en, en los bailes. So I wasn't allowed to go to school dances, uh, not to mention dating, like, no, that was not even in my radar. I didn't, I did not even ever consider that because I already knew the answer is like, no. And, uh, and, you know, that, that, you know, that did uh, cause depression in me growing up because I, you know, I wanted to be like the other kids, like the, like the other girls and I you know see them going to the mall and I was not being uh, allowed to, to go, to go to the, to go to the mall. Um, so it did, um, you know, it did cause some depression. Uh, and, uh, no, now looking back, I know I do see that where, my my where my mom was coming from was you know she grew up at a time where they were they were even more traditional where even they were not allowed to just go anywhere at, at all fiestas no or my as your abuelita says I, i'm pretty sure she's uh told you that they sometimes uh, the neighbors would invite them this is back in mexico would invite them to to go to a birthday party and then my, my abuelito, your great grandfather would say, oh yeah, no, that, no que vayan, no que vayan las muchachas. Yeah, the girls are, uh, they're okay, if, if, it's okay for them to go. But then, you know, they, before my mom and, he, and her sisters would leave the house, my, my abuelito uh, would say, uh, but you, you know, you are not allowed to dance. It's like, you're gonna go, but you're not gonna dance. Cause it's like, you're not allowed to dance. So they would go to the parties, to the birthday parties, and they would just like they, they would just stand there because they were not allowed to to um, uh, to dance because no that was that was not proper. So again, going back to your question, growing up Catholic, uh, so there were those silences, uh, but at the same time, you know, it was a very rich and, and beautiful experience in that I, I really 
uh, got to connect with my faith and develop my faith. Um, and it's, you know, it's rooted in the beautiful experiences that I had at my local church. But again, you know, it also came with silences. And one of the reasons why Becoming Mujeres is such an important project uh, for me. And uh, no, now I'm going to turn the question to you. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so Lupita, you know, share with us uh, from your experience growing up Catholic, you know, growing up as a uh, Catholic, how, how was, how was, how has your experience, experience been? Because let me tell you, you know, my parents this next month, uh, May 2nd, it'll be their 52nd wedding anniversary. Already? So, already. Yeah. 52nd <laughs> wedding anniversary. And uh, so obviously, you know, my parents, uh, you know, have been married for, uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, in your case, that's not your case uh, because you uh, you went through the experience of seeing your parents divorce. So uh, share with us your experience growing up Catholic, especially your experience with divorce. Catholicism, like you like you said, mentioned in the book multiple times, uh, faith and life are so incredibly intertwined. Honestly, it's it's crazy. Like I'll walk down the street, I'll see like fifty altars. I mean. And it's normal for me. It's not necessarily normal for my friends. And yeah. I mean, you, you know, when something is so normalized in your life, when you, you see things that other people would think it's like, oh, that's just, it's so different. And you think it's just, it's like, it's some random part of your life that you just didn't necessarily associate to be abnormal. Yes. Like when I was little, we would walk to church. I would, I would use all the different altars as like different checkpoints. <laughs> yes, you know, and with Lupita, so we, we live in a, in a Latinx uh, neighborhood. The church is just three blocks from, from where we live. So um, the, there are um, public altars through, throughout the, the, the streets. And these are, you know, people who have their altares to La Virgen de Guadalupe, mainly San Judas Tadeo is another one. And they have them right outside. So it's not only for protection, but also for inviting people to, to come into prayer. And I have seen um, people stopping by, doing the sign of the cross um, in front of these uh, public altars. I remember one, I was walking to church and I saw a gentleman with his rosary and he was out there on the sidewalk. There was um, an altar and he was praying the rosary right before the, the altar. The, uh, the book cover of um, Our Lady of Everyday Life is a picture of Lupita and my mom. And my mom is blessing Lupita right in front of an altar to La Virgen de Guadalupe. And that altar is just down the street from uh, where we live. And it's a public altar that the, the owner of the house uh, placed there because she's very devoted to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just like you said, being Catholic in this neighborhood is, it's, it's very normal. Okay? It's a fiesta. <laughs> it, it is. It's like, there's the but the church at the very end of the street, like I, I never thought of the church being separate from the neighborhood. I just thought that the church just extended all the way back to our home. You know what? It, and it actually does feel like it, you know, with all the aesthetics that we have throughout the streets, it, it's almost, it's a, it is an extension. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. I never thought about it, about it that way, but it's yeah. true. Like when, I don't know, Mama Hula and Papa out there like, it's time to go to mass. I'm like, the second we stepped out of the house, I already felt like I was stepping into the church. <laughs> there, there was no like waiting to 
I guess, arrive at the church. I mean, the second you get out of your house, you're already there. Yes, yeah, especially on December 12th. Is yeah. like you hear the mariachis throughout the, the, the neighborhood that they're playing Las Mañanitas to, to La Virgen, the main street where the church is. It's like daytime. They have the puestecitos, the different booths selling um, images of La Virgen de Guadalupe. And San Judas Tadeo, San Judas Tadeo, or St. Jude, is always La Virgen de Guadalupe's best buddy. If you if you pay attention, you notice, you'll, you'll notice Altares or home altars or public altars to Our Lady Guadalupe always have the image, the image or yeah. the statuette of something. You, you look right there. The little altar, like right next to us, actually has both of them right yes. there. Yes. Uh, so, so yes. So, you know, growing in in this in a very uh, Catholic uh, family and environment, um, how how did you experience the the divorce? Um, I mean, you already know that I I definitely <laughs> predicted it coming. And oh, let me pause right here okay. because, because, because she said, I know I, I predicted it. I you know I saw it coming because sometimes as, um, you know, as parents, we think that our children do not notice when there are arguments, when there are disagreements, when there are when there's tension between the, the spouses and they do notice, you know, they might pretend to be playing with the toy. They might be pretending to be you know, nowadays on on their cell phones. But they're paying attention to everything we say and we don't say. So that's something to definitely for all of us, for those of us who are caregivers or you know parents of, of children to keep in mind. Yeah, um, definitely. So, you know, going back to that, the divorce, when you guys told me like, oh, we're getting a divorce. I was like, oh, okay. And I mean, I thought it was like normal. I was like, I was actually overjoyed when I heard you guys were, being, were going to get separated because just, I was like, finally, finally it's, it's happening. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just knew that it was the best option for the mm -hmm. both of you. And sometimes, I mean, not necessarily now, but definitely like right when it was happening, it was, it was difficult for me to, you know, not necessarily remain faithful, but to go in a faith filled space with the idea that you know divorce is okay that divorce is normalized because divorce is definitely demonized mm -hmm. by the catholic church it's it's like you have one partner you stay with them forever but you know sometimes it's not good sometimes you gotta leave sometimes you gotta set you separate yourself from that and i am definitely a very very, very big advocate for divorce it's I don't feel like you would expect that from like a 15 year old like I love divorce <laughs> no, no I'm not saying that everyone should get a divorce I'm not like you get a divorce you get a divorce you get a divorce everyone gets a divorce no it's if there is a relationship that two people are married and they honestly should not be um then they should get a divorce I mean everyone does it when they're dating people you break it off mm -hmm. you know you're engaged, you're like, nah, break it off. Why can't it be the yeah. same? Yeah, you know what, Luca, you know, this is something that, that is so important uh, for, for, you know, for parents, because sometimes, you know, one of the main reasons why some individuals stay in these um, relationships, in, in these marriages, is because, you know, I hear over and over, I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for my children. What am I going to do? I'm going to break up the family if, if I, if I, if I, if we get a divorce. So it's always that I'm doing it for my children. And that's the reason why I stay. No, How but, do you respond to that? Someone that tells you that, like, when you see that it's a dysfunctional yeah. relationship, but they, they tell you, or they say, I'm staying it for my children. Yeah, you know, I guess I just want to yell at them. <laughs> but I'm not going to, because I got to be respectful. Okay. But just stop it. You like, 
you are doing it, you're not doing it for your kids. You're not, honestly. Because if you truly prioritized and cared for their mental health, you would leave. You, you would leave. And I'm not saying, I'm not blaming them for staying. Absolutely not. Because, you know, there are some situations that it's very difficult to leave. But pinning the reason that you are staying on your kids, I believe is just, it's wrong. It's not correct. It's not, it's not the truth because there are definitely some unresolved, not necessarily issues, but factors that lead into you wanting to stay. And it's not your kids. Yes. You know, one one of the things that I um, definitely, you know, ask myself when um, before, because I I was the one who filed for divorce. Um, So one of the things that I kept asking myself and that led me to file the divorce was uh, there were two questions. And one of them was, um, what kind of what kind of um, life lesson do I want to gift Lupita uh, about relationships? You know, what kind of lesson do I want to pass on to Lupita about relationships and healthy relationships? And then, um, and then the second one is uh, was um, what would my eighty year old self tell me to do now? You know, because I, I kept on thinking, you know if I stay in this relationship that obviously is not working for the three of us and then time goes by in my 80 year self, what if my 80 year self would tell me you, you should have left back then, you know, yeah. don't you, um, you should have, instead of staying. So that was, there were the two questions. What kind of uh, life lesson do, uh, did I want to gift Lupita about womanhood and about healthy relationships? And the second one was what would my 80 year old self tell me to do now and those two when I asked myself those two questions I knew the answer Mm -hmm. and the answer was to to file for for divorce yeah yes um but actually addressing that one you know thing I brought up which was you know what are the factors that are leading you into staying it's actually I do I do have the answer now and um it actually came from the two questions that you asked yourself and I believe that the main reason it's not, it's not your kids, obviously, you just don't really know how to address it. So you say it's your kids because you believe that's the most logical reason. But the actual reason is because you believe it's selfish to leave. Mm -hmm. You believe that you aren't prioritizing your kids. Mm -hmm. So in the sense like, yeah, you, you think you're doing it for your kids, but in reality, you're doing it because you believe that if you left, you're being selfish. Mm. Oh my God. So insightful. Oh my God. <laughs> I am so proud of my Lupita. I'm proud of you too. If you could see me, I'm smiling and I'm, and I'm, and I'm crying. It's like, oh my God, it's, it's beautiful in it. And it's true. You know, it, it is very true. So that's not definitely, you know, for those of you out there who may be listening, who may be in a, a very difficult situation and considering, <laughs> and considering a divorce, um, ask yourself those two questions. And, uh, and sometimes we think that by staying, we're doing our children a favor, but in reality, we are not because by staying in an unhealthy relationship, we are teaching our children to endure negative, toxic relationships. El aguante, you know, el aguante is, uh, and, and we do much better if we leave and show them, um, 
and, and show them how to live in, in you know in a in a healthy way that living is also a a form of pursuing peace and happiness so now i mean this all of these topics are great and i wish we could go on and on and on but i'm going to ask you one last question before right. we we wrap up and this one is uh more general so from a Catholic Latina teen experience. What are some of the social pressures that you feel teens are facing today? I mean, I believe that this question actually ties really nicely into the last one, but it's it's difficult sometimes to honor your faith while honoring your identity because I am I'm incredibly progressive, obviously. Like I believe that you know divorce should be normalized. I have very progressive views on different things, such as abortion, marriage, sex, sexuality, um, gender dynamics. I am very progressive in all these different topics. And sometimes it's very difficult to go into the Catholic church being that these are the different opinions that make me me. Mm -hmm. And I honestly feel like sometimes I'm a traitor to the Catholic church. I feel like ashamed. I feel ashamed to be sitting in a pew right in front of the priest when I feel like I'm disrespecting what Catholicism is when sometimes the opinions of Catholicism are wrong. And just because I believe, you know, everyone should be equal, everyone should have the ability to decide what they want to do in their life. That doesn't mean I'm a traitor to the Catholic church because in the Bible, it's like, God loves everyone. So God is like totally okay with everything. So why should someone's sexual identity differ from that? Why should someone's idea of what they want to do with their body change whether or not they are capable of receiving love? Mm -hmm. So I believe, you know, everyone should be loved by God. Okay. You know, that, that and everybody is, every, loved, everyone by is <laughs> loved by God, but sometimes there are Catholics and Christians that are close-minded that aren't willing to accept those ideals because people don't conform to the social expectations perpetuated by those conservative mm -hmm. Catholics and Christians. And, you know, there are multiple different, you know, social pressures, you know, trying to grow up faster than you're normally, you know, expected to, to conform to these social expectations. But one really big one um, that involves both being Catholic and Latina and a teenager is feeling comfortable with your identity. Um, and being confident in your identity without feeling ashamed to also be Catholic. Mm -hmm. And honestly, to, you know, wrap this up that way, I'm not like ranting and ranting about, you know, everyone should be their own individual person and, you know, <laughs> forget social pressures, be yourself. You know, we are, we all already know that. So I don't need to go in circles, but how would you, you know, react to mm -hmm. someone who is struggling with these different social pressures and do you have any advice for them yes wow well, now she turned that to me no i i think that you know i can i can answer to you uh, as as a parent and and i would say that our our role our one our primary role um when we become parents um it is to is to be open you know, to be fully open to to um how our children are their their likes their dislikes their their identity obviously you know guide them and give them advice 
but don't constrain them. You know, uh, we need to to build their confidence, and we need to hear, you know, how who who they want to be, who they are, and you know, the the last thing you want is for for them to feel uncomfortable coming to you with with questions about sex, sexuality, sexual identity, gender dynamics, uh, and then they go to uh, one of their team friends. Uh, they don't have the right answers, or they go to Google again. They're not gonna. They're not gonna find the right answers. The best. The best person, or the person that they should go to, or people they should go to, is their parents. So, as uncomfortable as some of these topics may seem uh, to us as parents, or as you know, uncomfortable it may seem to to see that our, our babies are growing and are becoming young men and women um, as uncomfortable that may seem we got to remain open um, and write with them as I say write with them the choppy waves of life and not let go not let go not let go there are times when your teens are going to tell you leave me alone I want to be by myself and what I've had told Lupita and she has experienced this multiple times is like okay I will leave you alone. I won't talk to you, but I'm going to sit next to you. And that is important because then what, what it teaches Lupita in this case and what teaches our, our kids is that you're not a parent that just leave them to figure things out on their own. They can't. They're kids. They're, they're, they're still developing psychologically uh, and, uh, and they cannot figure it out on their own. They need you as much as they tell you that they don't, they do. So going back to your question, I think that it comes down to parents to, to, um, to be open, to acknowledge, to embrace, and to see as a gift, the importance of being fully open with our children, uh, how, you know, however they choose to live life, identify or their political views if they don't agree with how we grew up you know that's beyond the point the important thing is to be present and open uh, with them so wow Lupita that was an intense conversation <laughs> that was an intense conversation and we can go on and on and on and we can even have part two if you want <laughs> but um as you can see, um, this, these topics are very close to our heart, to our commitment with becoming mujeres, something that we deeply believe in. Mm -hmm. And in closing, I just want uh, you to share with everyone what uh, your plans, because this, this kid has everything planned, <laughs> your plans on for uh, your professional plans, I should say. Uh, well, like I said, mental health is so, so important for me. And you know, like many people my age, I spent such a long time, you know, trying to figure out which career path I want to go down. I mean, there's so many different careers I could choose, honestly, but my priority is mental health. And, you know, my mommy, she has a PhD. So I was like, I want to get a really good degree too. But I also want to focus on mental health and health in general. And what is the degree you can get in health? Oh, a medical degree. So I, you know, I was like, you know what, a medical degree, but what do I want to pursue? So I was like, what can I pursue that relates to mental health? Psychiatry, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I want to pursue a medical degree in psychiatry. 
And I have very, very big plans in terms of which universities I'm going to apply to, but I'll, I'm, I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I'll let all of you guys and girls and people figure that out. But all I'm going to say is it's a very prestigious university. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much to all of us for tuning in to um, you know, share with us this beautiful space with HTI Open Plaza. This is Dr. Maria de Socorro Castañeda and Guadalupe Tonantzin Casillas. Yes. Or Lupita. Or Lupita. <laughs> or Soco for short in my case. Thank you so much. And keep on shining your light big and bright. And if there are people out there that do not like your light, just tell them wear shades. Yeah, okay. wear those sunglasses. Wear those sunglasses, but you never dim your light for others. Adios. Adios. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.